Hello, my name is Dr. Ling Huang. Today, in this session, we're going to be discussing about bioenergetics, and in particular, ATP and water and the role it plays in bioenergetics. By the end of this session, you should be able to understand the central role of ATP in cellular energetics. You should also be able to use correctly the terms exergonic and endergonic in relation to chemical reactions, and to be able to explain the terms anabolism and catabolism, as well as metabolism and their interrelationships with appropriate examples, and to relate to the importance of hydrogen bonds between water molecules and explain the influence of water-water interactions on the organization of amphiphatic molecules in an aqueous phase, and to be able to explain what is meant by the term hydrophobic effect. Now, why do living systems need energy? We all need energy for movement, for growth and development, for biosynthesis, which is um, synthesis of biomolecules for our body, as well as cell transport, for cell repair, as well as reproduction. Now, what is bioenergetics? It's basically the transformation and utilization of energy in cells and biological systems. Now, if we look at the es our estimated daily use of ATP in our organs, Basically, our kidneys uh, uses most of the ATP, which is up to 24 grams of ATP per gram of tissue, followed by our heart, our brains and liver, as well as our skeletal muscle. However, if we are, for example, exercising or running, our skeletal muscle then uses up to 24 grams of ATP per gram of tissue. Now, what is ATP? ATP is the energy is the energy currency in the cell. It's basically a molecule that provides energy for almost all cellular processes. Without ATP in the body, basically the biological systems will not be able to survive. So ATP is then used for biosynthesis, um, such as, as well as muscle contraction, as well as cell transport, etc. The main sources of ATP are actually from our diet, such as from carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. And what we do is when we oxidize these fuels in our body, it then generates ATP for energy. What happens is these fuels are oxidized to carbon dioxide and water in cells in a process called catabolism, and then energy is released to then generate heat and ATP. Carbon dioxide is then expired from our lungs and water is secreted as sweat and urine. ATP now is then utilized and then reconverted back to ADP and inorganic phosphate. Now ATP stands for adenosine triphosphate. It is then hydrolyzed to ADP, which contains diphosphate and it loses single inorganic phosphate in the whole process. This is then cycled through the body to produce energy via the oxidation of the fuels, as well as then to utilize the energy for various cell processes. Now, how do we generate ATP? It is generated in a process called cellular respiration. Now, this means that the fuels are being oxidized to generate ATP in chemical processes that take up oxygen to produce carbon dioxide. 
Now I mentioned there are three main types of fuels, which are carbohydrates. These are then oxidized to glucose, and fats are oxidized to fatty acids and glycerol, and proteins are then oxidized to amino acids. Glucose, fatty acids, and amino acids are then converted to acetyl-CoA, which then enters the TCA cycle, which is the citric acid cycle. And within this cycle, they are then completely oxidized to carbon dioxide. The electrons that are produced in the TCA cycle then enter the electron transport chain, which is the ETC. This is where electrons are then lost and transferred to oxygen, and the energy is then used to generate ATP in a process called oxidative phosphorylation. Now, when you look at ATP, how does it then carry so much energy? Now, ATP has a great deal of energy in it because of the three phosphate groups. These groups are all negatively charged and takes a lot of energy to hold the negative groups together. Now, when one, a single phosphate, is separated from the group of three phosphates, ATP is then hydrolyzed and converted back to ADP. And energy is then produced, which was containing in the bond that is now broken. Now, this is called a catabolic process, where energy is then released. In ATP hydrolysis, ATP is then hydrolyzed and converted to ADP, and the single phosphate bond is then broken to produce the single inorganic phosphate. And the energy produced is 7.3 kilocalories per mole per phosphate. Now, where is all this taking place, and where is ATP generated in the cell? If you think of the cell as a factory of ATP, now the mitochondria is then the powerhouse of the cell. This all occurs within the cell cytoplasm and the mitochondria. Metabolism pathways in a eukaryotic cell takes place as glycolysis, the citric acid cycle, and oxidative phosphorylation. What happens is glycolysis is the breakdown of glucose to pyruvate, and this takes place in the cell cytoplasm. Pyruvate is then converted to acetyl-CoA, which occurs in the mitochondrial matrix. This then enters the citric acid cycle in the mitochondria, which then produces NADH. Electrons then enter the electron transport chain within the mitochondrial membranes to undergo oxidative phosphorylation and to synthesize ATP. Well, what is metabolism? It is a set of chemical reactions in organisms that maintain life, and energy, where energy is transferred as atoms and bonds are rearranged. There are three main purposes of metabolism. First is the conversion of food to energy to be able to, to, be able to run cellular processes. Oxidation of food also produces building blocks to make proteins, lipids, nucleic acids, and carbohydrates that make up our cell. It is also involved in the removal of metabolic waste. Metabolic reactions are categorized as catabolic and anabolic. Catabolic reactions involves the breakdown of compounds such as glucose to pyruvate, and anabolic is the complete opposite which involves the building up of compounds 
such as from amino acids to make proteins. Now, if you compare catabolism and anabolism, the processes in catabolism involve the breaking down of large complexes into smaller molecules. This is to provide energy and components needed by anabolic reactions to be able to build molecules. These processes are categorized as degradative, oxidative, releasing energy, exergonic, as well as converging. Whereas anabolism involves the construction of large complex organic molecules from small molecules. This is to be able to synthesize molecules for cellular function. And these processes are biosynthetic. They're reductive, they require energy, they are endergonic, and they're considered diverging. Now, these metabolism reactions are governed by a set of rules called thermodynamics in biology. This is, consists of um, two main laws of thermodynamics that we will cover here. The first law of thermodynamics involves the conservation of energy, where the law of conservation of energy says that energy cannot be created or destroyed, and it can only be transferred and changed from one form to another. For example, the food and fuels that are oxidized by our body is converted to heat and energy in a process called cellular respiration. And this is to generate ATP for cellular processes and function. Whereas in the second law of thermodynamics, basically explains that no natural processes can occur unless it is accompanied by an increase in entropy or the disorder of the universe. And this basically describes G equals H minus Ts, where G is Gibbs free energy, H is enthalpy, T's temperature, and S is entropy. So basically, the change in Gibbs free energy determines whether a chemical reaction can occur spontaneously. So if the change in G is negative, the reaction is considered to be spontaneous, and the reaction is hexagonic which means there is a release of energy. However, if changes G is positive, the reaction is considered non-spontaneous and the reaction is endergonic, which means that it requires energy for the reaction. So for exergonic reactions, such as catabolic reactions, the change in G is negative and the reactions occur spontaneously. Whereas endergonic reactions, such as anabolic reactions, the change, is, the change in G is positive and requires energy for the reactions to take place. So let's take a look at a few examples that are catabolic reactions. And such examples are when carbohydrates break down into sugars, when fats break down into fatty acids and glycerol, and when proteins are metabolized to amino acids. These then either enter glycolysis or are broken down into acetyl-CoA, which then enter the citric acid cycle and to the electron transport chain to generate ATP. These small molecules of fatty acids, amino acids and glycerol, as well as sugars, can then go into the anabolic pathway, which then reactions that build biomolecules. Fatty acids are then synthesized to form phospholipids and fats, as well as amino acids 
from proteins and as well as um, biosynthesis of RNA and DNA. Now let's look at water in our body. Did you know that you can survive for weeks without food, but you can only survive for a few days without water? There are very important functions of water in our body. It helps maintain our blood volume and blood pressure, as well as regulates our body temperature. It is used in cellular transport, as well as structural support for molecules. And it participates in metabolic reactions and is a universal solvent in our cells. And it's also a lubricant and shock absorber. Water is a universal solvent. It is a dipolar molecule containing a hydrogen atom that is electron positive, as well as an oxygen, which is electron negative. And it forms hydrogen bombs and is able to participate in hydration shells. It's an excellent solvent in the body where it can readily dissolve polar organic molecules by forming hydrogen bonds, as well as inorganic salts by forming high electrostatic interactions. So cations and anions, such as chlorides, potassium and sodium ions, can be surrounded by a hydration shell of water molecules, and it's also essential in maintaining the acid-base balance in the body. Now let's take a look at hydrophilic and hydrophobic molecules. Hydrophilic molecules means that they are water-loving, and hydrophobic means that they're water-hating. Hydrophilic molecules are able to mix well with water because they are charged, containing electronegative and electropositive charges. Whereas hydrophobic molecules are molecules that do not mix well with water, and that such molecules can be lipids, um, such as triglycerides, that contain long-chain hydrocarbons that are polar, and these do not mix well with water. So amphiphatic molecules, however, are both hydrophobic and hydrophilic, means they are both polar and non-polar. And cell membrane lipids, such as phospholipids, are called amphiphatic molecules that contain both polar head groups, which are hydrophilic and non-polar hydrocarbon chains that are hydrophobic. They are able to spontaneously aggregate by burying the hydrophobic tails in the anterior and exposing the hydrophilic heads to water, forming this effect called hydrophobic effect. So what it does is these non-polar molecules aggregate in an aqueous solution to minimize the surface area and exclude water molecules. And they can form three different types of structures. First, they can form these spherical micelles with the hydrophobic tails facing in the inwards of the spheres. And they can form the bilayer sheets that form lipid cell membranes containing the hydrophobic tails sandwiched between hydrophilic head groups. And they can also form these liposomes, which are enclosed spherical bilayers that are enclosing water right in the middle of the spheres. Hydrophobic effect also occurs in globular proteins, where hydrophobic residues of the amino acids are folded so that they're buried within the, dry, within the core of the protein. Did you know that the average man and woman is actually made out of 60% water? 
Our blood plasma is 50% of our total blood volume, and it contains 92% water and 8% blood plasma proteins, such as albumin, globulins, and fibrogen. Plasma is the watery fluid portion of our blood in which the cells and proteins are being carried. It transports nutrients as well as waste throughout the body and carries various compounds, including proteins, electrolytes, carbohydrates, minerals, and fats, which are all dissolved in it. And it helps maintain our electrolyte concentration balance and as well as protect our body from infection and other blood disorders. Water and electrolytes are vital in maintaining the balance in our body. Both the extracellular and intracellular fluid contain electrolytes, which are salts that dissolve in water, forming ions. And the major electrolytes in the extracellular fluid are sodium and chloride, whereas the major electrolytes within the cells are potassium and phosphates. And our kidneys help maintain the fluid electrolyte balance. Now, in order to first understand fluid and our electrolyte balance in the body, we first need to understand what is osmolality versus osmosis. Osmolality measures the amount of dissolved particles in a fluid, which includes sodium, potassium, chloride, glucose, as well as urea in a sample of blood or urine. Whereas osmosis is when water molecules move from a higher water concentration compartment to a lower water concentration compartment. That is, from a more dilute solution to a more concentrated solution containing solutes. So, for example, if you take a look at our red blood cells, it has 0.9% of sodium chloride. And if you put our red blood cells into a hypertonic solution, which contains, for example, 10% sodium chloride, what happens is that water will start diffusing out of the red blood cells into the higher salt concentration. This causes our red blood cells to be shriveled. Whereas if the red blood cells are placed in, for example, water, what happens is that water starts diffusing into the red blood cells from a higher water concentration into the cells which contains a lower water concentration. This causes the red blood cells to start swelling and even causing cell lysis. So that is why intravenous saline contains 0.9% sodium chloride to maintain the same osmolality as our blood. So in order to maintain our fluid and electrolyte concentration balance in the body, what happens is if the electrolyte concentration is too high, fluid then moves into that compartment via osmosis. And if the electrolyte concentration is too low, fluid then moves out of that compartment so that the body can actively move electrolytes in and out of the cells to maintain the correct concentrations of electrolyte and fluid balance among the different compartments. And our kidneys maintain this fluid and electrolyte balance by filtering them from blood and returning them to the blood, and as well as excreting any excess into the urine. And if there is an increased serum osmolality, this can be either due to decreased water in the blood or 
increased solutes. And when the osmolality of the serum and interstitial fluid is too high, water then moves out of the cells, and this can cause dehydration, high blood glucose, and even diabetes.